Hey, it's Kale. I want to quickly remind you that this episode deals with spoilers for Daredevil Born Again, plus some spoilers for the Daredevil TV show on Netflix. You've been warned. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Matt and Kale Read Comics. My name is Matt Smith. I'm a Canadian and British cartoonist, filmmaker, and comics educator currently living in Scotland. And I'm Kale Wereke. I'm a former filmmaker, comic collector, and cosplayer. And today we have a very special guest, my good friend Josh Robb. I'm really excited, Kale, because you and Josh are probably the two people that I've had the most conversations with about comics. I mean, my wife Emma's probably heard me talk about comics the most out of anyone I know, but she doesn't really respond and engage in the way that the two of you have. So this is kind of a cool experience for me. Uh, Josh and I met while both teaching in Tokyo at an international school, and we were both co-teaching a technology class, and we had to co-plan every two days. And we spent about, you know, a third of the time actually doing work and co-planning, a third of the time talking about my my love life or lack thereof at the time. And then a third of the time was really just talking comics. So this is kind of the first time that we're putting our conversation, you know, and recording it. Josh is also a former VFS student. So Kale and I met at Vancouver Film School many years ago. Josh was actually a Vancouver Film School student as well. Longtime comics fan. Everyone, please say hi to Josh Robb. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Um, glad to be here. I've been listening since episode one and have lots of things uh, to say. I've been uh, listening to your opinions and thinking, hmm, I got comments on that. So I'm glad you were uh, brave enough to let me come on the show. Is there anything right off the bat that you want to call me out on? Because we, we do invite, you know, listener feedback. <laughs> no, no, it, it's mostly good. And and I actually took some notes that may come up in the episode today. Don't worry. It's all it's all good stuff. <laughs> you took notes for correcting me. OK, let's we'll, we'll see what it comes up. Um So we're talking today about Daredevil Born Again. Um, Daredevil, you know, is not as well known as maybe Spider-Man or Batman. I want to give just a quick synopsis about Daredevil. Uh, And if you don't know Daredevil's origin, don't worry, because this book will give you, I think, eight versions and retellings of his origin. I don't know if either of you picked up on that. Just every episode, or sorry, every issue starts or ends with a recap on who Daredevil was. But he is a blind lawyer who was blinded as a child but uh, radioactive waste struck his eyes losing his sight but he gained superhuman abilities and all his other senses and he operates in New York City as a masked vigilante Um, this story is uh, taking place when his ex-girlfriend Karen Page who's now a ex-porn star an ex-junkie she is down on her luck and she sells the only thing she has left of value and that's Daredevil's secret identity of Matt Murdock She sells this. It eventually makes its way to the kingpin of crime, his kind of arch nemesis, who uses the information to systematically destroy Matt Murdock's life. And he has to kind of rebuild himself from nothing. And eventually Daredevil is, you know, born again, as the title implies. Um, Josh, what's what's your history of this book with this? What's your connection with this book? Yeah, so like you said, I'm I'm a longtime comics fan, and and my my story is I think very similar to to Kale's. You know, we would we would go get our haircut, and while we were waiting, you know, for our you know I was waiting for my brothers to get their haircut, my mom would be like, go go over to the comic book shop and just read comics. So that's that's what I did, and made me a, a lifelong comic fan. And 
long long story short, I, I became a Silver Surfer fan. That's a whole nother conversation <laughs> because wow. nobody should be a Silver Surfer fan. Uh, we we can do it's, a whole other episode on that someday. <laughs> it's very rare that someone will call out Silver Surfer as like their their go to guy. Well, mm-hmm. what, what happened is. It was, I became a fan during the Infinity Gauntlet series, and, and, and Silver Surfer uh, played a big role in that, and I so I kind of, you know, latched onto him, so to speak. But okay. but anyway, I've I've you know, uh, I will say there is one really good uh, run for Silver Surfer that might be a cool idea for a future podcast, but we can talk about that later. But in, the rest of Silver Surfer is is not great. Anyway, <laughs> Silver Surfer fan, I, I'm admitting it all my, <laughs> admitting it to the world. And and there's a, there's a, a comic where Silver Surfer is in in Daredevil. It's uh, there's a uh, a storyline that is just bonkers. And Nosetti did a story where Daredevil is hanging around with the Inhumans, and uh, basically they get pulled into hell, and they're talking to angels that are wearing Beastie Boys shirts and demons and all kinds of wacky stuff. And and the Silver Surfer makes an appearance. And so that that was my <laughs> first sort of like, oh, Silver Surfer, he's on the cover. I'll buy this. And, you know, I, I, I read that and, and that storyline, it, it's great. It's bonkers. It's wacky. John Romita Jr. did the art. So it's beautiful, but it's it's off the wall. And I was like, I need to read more of this. And little did I know <laughs> that most Daredevil is not being pulled into hell and dealing with demons. So but that was my start. And then I, I have a really good friend, uh, Mike, um, who who is a longtime comments fan as well. We've been friends since since uh, middle school. He's crazy about Daredevil. He so so once I sort of was like, I like this guy Daredevil. He's kind of cool. He's like, let me tell you about Daredevil. And and after that, I think uh, it was just a deep dive. I, I love Daredevil. He became one of my favorite um, characters. It's a it's a love hate relationship um, because Daredevil comics are either some of the best comics ever and some of the worst but i i would say so my history is with born again is i've read it many times um and we can talk you know we'll get into that in a little bit but uh <laughs> but it is it is one of those books that uh i think really helped open my eyes to sort of the potential of comics to be something more than just like you know heroes fighting villains and punching them in the face it's it's a deeper sort of comic yeah i i couldn't agree more there's so much i think that really thoughtful writers use daredevil as a way to really explore some really deeper themes and this is a great example of it this graphic novel but i think he's a character that has that potential to really really delve deep into some really honest truths about the human condition one thing that i really thought was interesting first of all you know throwing daredevil and the inhumans and silver surfer together you know in hell or anywhere else like that is just the marvel comic spirit like wouldn't it be cool if these guys met what would they get up to and i just love that but also, I like the idea that you were kind of tricked into reading Daredevil because one of your favorite characters crossed over with him. And that's very much why Marvel does that. And even with Frank Miller's connection to Daredevil, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, but he started drawing Daredevil because he was a fill-in artist for Spider-Man. And Daredevil showed up, and he really impressed the powers that be by drawing Daredevil as a guest character. So even Frank Miller found his way to Daredevil through another character. So I, I like that connection that you have with him there. Kale, what's your background story with this uh, graphic novel? Well, this is one of the graphic novels that I've read at the bookstore that my mom <laughs> used to leave me at. I think a lot of a lot of graphic novels will link back to that point in my life. Um, but, uh, the character of Daredevil is one of those characters that I really liked because he kind of looked like Batman. I was a Batman fan, right? Uh, to begin mm-hmm. with, uh, and 
Daredevil, uh, <laughs> you know, in this book more than any other book, I, I, as a character, he suffers way more than some, a character like Spider-Man would. And Spider-Man is one of those characters that's kind of known to suffer a lot. Uh, yeah. And that's what make, makes him kind of human. And uh, Daredevil here is just like, he's put through the ringer uh, and he somehow finds a way out. And, um, you know, it's funny that they, I was listening to uh, like a commentator uh, online while I was doing research uh, for this book. And he drew parallels between this story and uh, Batman Nightfall. Okay. Which is a similar kind of arc as well about a hero falling from grace and then having to kind of build himself back up and then become like re, uh, I guess, like uh, re enter the hero business and it take uh, his mantle back yeah. from, you know, uh, a pretender. Uh, so it was really interesting. Yeah. I, I felt like, of course, maybe this was the, the proto uh, version of nightfall but uh yeah i think i mean daredevil as a character i didn't really get into daredevil as a character till like my teens late teens and early 20s well i, I read kevin smith's book and that mm-hmm. i was a big fan of that book and then it was michael bendis brian michael bendis's book oh. uh or his run with daredevil that i really liked as well so brian uh, michael bendis's I'm a big fan. run oh sorry but brian michael bendis's run of daredevil i think is maybe the best comic book run ever for it's, any comic yes. in history. It's incredible. And Kale and I have been talking about like, what are we going to, what else can we do? And we haven't done any Marvel comics and it's, you know, not necessarily by design. I think there's a lot of really great Marvel runs and, you know, um, but I think there's a lot of really great kind of, you know, short miniseries and graphic novels from DC. So it's easy to pull, you know, the, the dark Knight returns, V for Vendetta, Watchmen, Marvel does a better job, I think, sometimes of having these longer runs and having creators stay on and really making an impact. But, you know, Kale said, why don't we do the Bendis Daredevil? Why don't we do the Kevin Smith Daredevil, as you mentioned, Kale? And I always say, well, we can't do those ones without doing Born Again. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of my history with this is that it's not my favorite Daredevil run. It's not my favorite Frank Miller story. I mentioned, I think, on our Sin City podcast, maybe it was, or no, maybe it was our We Three episode, that I kind of follow writers more than anything. And, you know, I knew Dark Knight Returns is one that you had to read. And once I read that, I was like, okay, what else has this Frank Miller guy got? And then I read Year One, Batman Year One, which we will talk about at some point. And then I was like, okay, what else? And then David Mazzucchelli and Frank Miller had both teamed up to do Daredevil Born Again. And I kind of knew that Daredevil had this reputation, as Kale mentioned, as being kind of... Marvel Comics, Batman. So it was kind of a no-brainer to follow these two creators over to read this one. But it is, you know, really, really, like Kale said, like just putting this character through the ringer and just Matt Murdock has just suffered so much. But really, you know, these runs that Kevin Smith did and Brian Michael Bendis did are so informed by this graphic novel. Kevin Smith's series is very much, I think, a sequel to what he does you know, what Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli are doing and even Bendis, you know, everything that informs Bendis's take on the character, he's very much haunted by, you know, what happens in this story. So that's why I wanted to do this. You know, even though it's not my favorite, it's not, you know, my go-to Daredevil story to reread and reread, it just informs so much that we have to start here. And uh, my history with this book, like I said, I picked it up 
at the bookstore in Kuala Lumpur where I was living in Malaysia and there's this wonderful bookstore, Kinyakunya. It's a Japanese company. It's this massive, massive uh, graphic novel section. So I was kind of like making my way through. But I got really into Daredevil and then the movie was coming out uh, when I was just kind of really getting into comics in a big, bad way in high school. But I was so excited. It was going to be shown in Malaysia in the theaters and they even were giving out uh, promotional drink cups and you know popcorn bags but then they didn't show it they decided to ban the movie at the last minute because it had devil in the title and they thought that was too controversial for malaysian audiences so i didn't see it in the cinema this is another one that i have to admit that i saw for the first time the film um a pirated you know cinema copy which didn't do it any favors not that it was that strong of a film to begin with but that is my (laughs) history with this character one thing that i want to touch on though is Kale, you know, you mentioned Daredevil as kind of being the Marvel's version of Batman. And I I, oft, I often thought this, but rereading this graphic novel, I, I really see a lot of differences. You know, Batman is very emotionally closed off and very cold. But I think Daredevil or I mean, Matt Murdock, you know, of all people, is very open with his emotions and is kind of ruled by his emotions, very hot headed. And what do you guys feel, you know, is Daredevil a good approximation of, you know, Marvel's Batman? I don't think it is. Uh, I think this is a Marvel version of Batman in the sense that it is a human hero. I think Marvel is really good at making their heroes more humanistic and relatable than, uh, let's say, DC, right? DC, like, let's say the character of Batman is like almost uh, superhuman. His, we've said this before. He is uh, a master detective. He is the peak of... Uh, just physical strength and he is you know like a super intellect basically right and here daredevil is just like a street level vigilante who is susceptible to human emotions um rage uh things like that um i think it's you know i I don't think there's any marvel character that i can think of that can kind of be equated to Batman, you know, one-to-one. But uh, I think it's just a Marvel method. It's just to make uh, just a humanistic, uh, flawed characters and then kind of go from there. I agree. I think that with Batman, you know, um, he really is trying to to keep his emotions in control, right? And, Mm -hmm. And Daredevil is out of control all the time. <laughs> Matt Murdock is a mess. Like he, he just is like, he's hit one of the themes throughout daredevils, you know, p- comic history is he is terrible at relationships, man. Like oh, he's he such is, a cad. He's so bad. Yeah. <laughs> so bad. It's like embarrassing. I'm like, dude, I'm embarrassed for you, dude. What is going <laughs> on? He can't keep it together. He, he doesn't know how to, you know, balance his, his work life and his, a work life, I guess his vigilante <laughs> life and his real life. And, um, and he's just always all emotion all the time, always pushing people away and then pulling them back in. And, and it's, that's though, I think one of the things that is interesting about Daredevil and reading the book is that, um, it, it is a book really about somebody who is struggling. And, and this particular story is, is a struggle. His, his life gets decimated, but, but every Daredevil story is about him just just struggling to kind of keep it together, um, and even even when he kind of has it all together, it's like oh you you just know he's going to lose it soon, and 
and I think that's that's sort of the difference is that his his go to is is not Batman's, which is cool, calm, collected, you know, compartmentalize, overly plan, get ready. You know, it's like, no, Daredevil is just like react, react, react. A thing happens. I, I have no time to stop and think. I just am going to react to it uh, with, with pure emotion. And I, and I think that's one of the things that um, makes it such a sort of soap opera-y type book and mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's very soap opera with... With you know the cast of characters, Foggy, his his longtime partner and friend, is is always there and running in like Matt. What are you doing? You're messing everything up again, you know. And I'm not going to stand up for you this time. And then he does, and you know, it's, it's he always it's does. V- he's he's the best friend. He's the best <laughs> he best is. friend. He is. I <laughs> I'm just looking at the the second issue just to jump ahead. I mean, we'll go back, but the scene where he's in this broken down crappy motel and he's just like talking to himself and trying to build himself up and he's like i'm gonna stand up i'm gonna go down i'm gonna confront the kingpin i'm gonna stand up and then there's this the this close-up on the doorknob and then it goes back to him and he's just lying down in bed and it just says i'm tired and that just hit home so hard you know just it really is a very very moving very powerful depiction of depression and just this immobility that he's feeling in this moment and he is that the emotion is, is really, really, really coming through in that scene. Like I think Frank Miller really hits a lot of emotional beats here, but he is, he's just, he's such a mess. Like it's interesting because I do want to go and just do a little bit of like a Frank Miller history lesson. Cause I think there's some interesting things to say about it, but you know, when he introduces Electra, you know, Matt's long lost true love from high school, Matt's already dating another character that he just kind of forgets about to make out with Electra a little bit. And then in this graphic novel, <laughs> He's dating another character and he just kind of forgets about her when Karen Page comes back and like just doesn't give this other girl a second thought. And he's constantly just hopping from girl to girl and they're always like his true love or he's always found the one. But he's just abandoned her as soon as an ex-girlfriend comes back or another girlfriend shows up. Yeah, I was even thinking of uh, Black Widow. I I think there (laughs) was like uh, some storyline with Daredevil and Black Widow as well. So uh he has yeah daredevil i guess in that sense he is kind of like batman where he doesn't really have like a uh steady kind of partner (laughs) so he just kind of cycles around and finds like so-called true loves Uh, yeah i was thinking of like electra electra is also one of his true loves right yeah Uh, Um, I just want to do a quick Frank Miller kind of history lesson because it's, it's just so interesting his his story not just with this character, but also with Batman. And again, you know, making that connections or parallels or maybe, you know, unparallels. But he started writing or he started Daredevil by drawing Daredevil. Like I said, he was drawing Spider-Man. I think it was Spectacular Spider-Man. They brought him over to do Daredevil starting with issue 158, which was came out in May 1979. The dates are a little weird because Marvel Comics, I mean, all mainstream comics, the dates don't quite match up to when they were actually published. So it was hard to kind of verify some of these dates, but late 70s um and then around when was it um yeah so may 1979 he took he came over to daredevil as the artist and if anyone listened to the sin city episode we talk a lot about how frank miller loves to draw people kicking other characters and characters kicking other characters (laughs) and uh i just think it's funny because he celebrated taking over daredevil as an artist by having black widow kick a character in the face on his second page so i just think there's nothing more frank miller than okay i'm taking over this character taking over this book and i'm gonna show a character kicking another character 
but he was just the the writer at that time. And then Denny O'Neill started editing the book. And then he realized that, you know, Miller wasn't getting along with the writer. So he decided, okay, that um, Roger McKenzie, the writer, they took him off Daredevil and said to Frank Miller, you're going to be a writer artist. They figured that the art was selling the book more than the writing was. So then Frank Miller was in complete control of the book with Klaus Klaus Janssen as the inker. And in his first issue as writer and artist, he introduced Elektra. So right out of the gate, he introduces this character who has endured and become like a huge part of the Daredevil mythology. And what I love is on like page one or two of the first book that he wrote or drew, guess what he showed Daredevil doing? (laughs) He kicked a dog. So yes, he's celebrating again. (laughs) Another milestone of his Daredevil career by having Daredevil kick a dog. But he then started this run where he, in the first issue, like I said, introduced Elektra. The second issue, he brought in Bullseye and really made Bullseye like a very serious threat to Daredevil. And then in the third issue, he kind of stole the Kingpin of Crime from Spider-Man. Kingpin traditionally was a Spider-Man villain, but Frank Miller is like, I'm going to take this guy because Daredevil is a street level, very noir sort of you know, down and dirty fighting organized crime sort of guy fighting thugs. And he took and kind of stole Kingpin and made Kingpin Daredevil's, you know, number one adversary. And that's why we think of Kingpin being this Daredevil villain, because Frank Miller's like, I'm just going to take this guy. So he can. I was going to say, like, the the thing about about Miller is that he, he really he really defined who Daredevil is like he he's the one who sort of, you know, all those characters, but he's the one who introduced you know his mentor stick he brought in mm. you know the ninjas with with uh the hand you know made that sort of connection and and i think that what's what's fascinating and people maybe don't know is is frank miller is pretty much why the west became obsessed with ninjas in general it's it's all frank miller he he did uh he's the one who brought uh wolverine into japan he brought the hand into daredevil and we all have heard of the teenage mutant ninja turtles well eastman and laird <laughs> they were they were parodying miller i mean if you if they parodied um both he had a book called ronin and then also daredevil Mm -hmm. and daredevil has this ninja clan called the hand which is like this evil ninja clan well who are the bad guys in teenage mutant ninja turtles the foot like yeah it's it's all a parody (laughs) of miller's you know sort of ninja obsession that he sort of weaved into his books so like the the world has miller to thank really for uh the teenage mutant ninja turtles well, even the Ninja Turtles origin is, um, you know, there's the, the vials of the ooze that falls off of a truck and then goes into the sewer and mutates the turtles. If you look in, I think, the first issue of the Ninja Turtles, there it's the truck that is driving by and loses these vials, loses these tubes, is the truck that Matt Murdock is pushing a man out of the way. There's a blind man crossing the road. Matt Murdock is a young boy, pushes this man out of the way, causes an accident, and one of these tubes breaks and that's what gives him his superpowers by breaking this radioactive material on his eyes but in ninja turtles we see that scene kind of play in the background and one of the tubes falls down the sewer grate and turns the turtles into the ninja turtles so their origin is even linked yeah i am aware of that as well like yeah it was uh <laughs> an interesting connection you know like uh I, I i you know like in the 90s i remember growing up and uh being a fan of Ninja Turtles, but then like I didn't link it up really till like the late nineties, early two thousands when like I yeah, I think I was reading Wizard magazine and they mentioned the link between Daredevil and the Ninja Turtles and it blew my mind at the time. <laughs> 
R.I.P. Wizard Magazine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Kale and I have talked about this in, in private just very often how Wizard Magazine was this uh, comics news magazine. It was great. When I was living in Malaysia, going to high school, you could only get it at the airport. And it was always like this treat. You know, I was going traveling and, you know, I love comics, but you can read a comic or at least I read comics so quickly. But, you know, a magazine, there's a bit more content there. And, you know, it it lasts almost the length of a flight when a comic doesn't last until I take off. But the 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 article, the repeating um, column that Kale and I always talk about is the casting call. Do I you was that, just going to say it. I was <laughs> going to bring it up. Yep. That's the one. <laughs> I wish we had the issues so we could go back and see, you know, who Wizard would have cast in the Daredevil movie because they always do this <laughs> their dream cast of if and this was like long before Marvel movies were taking over the world. This was like if we ever get to see the Avengers on screen, this is who we want to be in the Avengers movie. And it's just that was always my most my favorite part of the magazine just like, "Oh yeah, what what comic are they going to adapt?" You know, wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world where comic movies came out like every couple months? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. And that's the thing, right? The the reason that existed is because there were no com- well, not very many comic movies at all. So we all were like dreaming and we would all read Wizard and and then we would go, well, I would go to school and debate with my friends if their picks were were right or not. Yeah, I know that uh, they always wanted, I think, Tom Cruise to be, was it Captain America they wanted Tom Cruise for? And I think... No, Iron Man, wasn't it? Was it Iron Man? Okay, yeah, I wasn't sure who it was. Um, eh, ah, Yeah, I miss Wizard. But uh, famously, Frank Miller hated Wizard. He he spoke about it very publicly, about how much he he thought it was poisoning the industry. But to get back to my, my quick history lesson, just like, I want to get to the interesting stuff, so... He finished his original run of Daredevil in 1983, February 1983, with issue 191, and then he went off and did some other things, and I think one of those projects he worked on was Ronin that Josh mentioned. But then uh, in 1986 was like just a crazy year for Frank Miller, and again, it, it's hard to tell exactly when these issues came out. Maybe one of you two know, but in 1986, or 1986 from June to December... Uh, he published The Dark Knight Returns for DC, which is going to be the topic of our 10th episode that we're very excited to talk about. So that was in 1986. He kind of went to like the end of Batman's career. And then later in 1986, he um, went back to Daredevil and kind of did this deconstruction of Daredevil with this book, Bat- uh, Daredevil Born Again. And then it's not, again, my research is very fuzzy. It's unclear whether it was at the end of 1986 or just the start of 1987. But then he goes back to Batman and rewinds Batman to his origin and does Batman Year One with David Mazzucchelli again. And so in the span of like a year and a half, and these books were coming out around the same time. Daredevil was coming out at the same time as um, Dark Knight Returns. And he's just like completely reinventing comics in this span of like a year and a half with these two crazy characters and it's just, what a time to be alive. When I, when I think of Frank Miller nowadays, obviously I, I have such negative connotations and uh, negative feelings about, you know, the type of person he is. <laughs> but yes. um, he was so, like, uh, well-loved and famous in the late 80s. And uh, yeah, and influential. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think you guys kind of debated on your Sin City episode. I don't know, his politics or whatever is, you know, is he misogynistic? I'm like, come on. Like, he's not a good guy. <laughs> he's just okay. not. It's, it's too bad. It's too bad, you know, you know, and it's that whole thing separating the person from the art. Um, I think, though, like you were saying, Kale, like those tendencies didn't really 
come out and show and tell, well, post 9-11 for sure, but, mm-hmm. but later in life. And I think in these early books, like I, I, I sort of read this Born Again through the lens you were thinking about, about how he treats women characters. And there were like panels where I'm like, look at how, what he's, look at how he's depicting Karen. It's, it's not, it's really bad. It's really misogynistic. And then there'd be another panel and I'm like, well, but look at this depiction here of glory. And, you know, so I think it's, it's, it's tough to sort of call in these early books. You can kind of waver back and forth, but I think, yeah, in his later work, it's, uh, I'm not a fan of Frank Miller, the man to, to, to say, to say the least. <laughs> yes, but let's talk about Frank Miller's art. You know, yes. maybe not so much Frank Miller the artist, but let's dive into his well, art. I, I, I have a question here because one of the things that I tried to find, and, and it goes to what you were saying, Matt, is that, you know, Born Again and Dark Knight Return c- came out almost at the same time. And what what I really want to know, I would love to know, and I, I didn't, I couldn't find the info, is is which did, which was actually made first you know that in terms of release date versus mm-hmm. when it was actually made because reading born again there is so much in here that i i could interpret as like a prototype sort of dark knight returns there are are panels that look almost exactly the same as panels in in dark knight returns there are fights that i'm like this this fight with nuke i don't know if you read those last two issues but the fight with nuke is the fight uh, with the the leader of the mutant gang that that Batman does in oh, Dark Knight really? Returns. I mean, there are there are just, there's so much that I think parallels. I'm so curious. Like, was was he working on these in parallel and it kind of like bled into each other, or did one come first and it sort of inspired the others? I, I don't know if you found any info on that. The only thing I can say to that is my copy of the Dark Knight Returns. Uh, I think it was like the 10th anniversary uh, trade paperback. He has like a little bit of a, I think it's a postscript at the end of the book talking about how, I think it was Denny O'Neill, because Denny O'Neill not only was an editor for Daredevil, but he also was working for DC and longtime editor and shepherd of Batman comics. But Denny O'Neill kept, Frank Miller kept pitching ideas and Denny O'Neill kept saying, that's more of a Batman idea. So Mm. I know he definitely did his first run and I know that he had ideas kind of saved up. So, I mean, you know, we've, talked at the start of this episode right now just like you know there are connections and there are things well that's you know batman's a bit more like this daredevil's a bit more like this so i wonder if it is sort of you know i'm looking at my wall right now i've got post-it notes for several books is he you know does he have a daredevil post-it note wall and a batman post-it note and is he kind of moving post-it notes from side to side and trying to decide what goes into what yeah, it's 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 interesting. I, I couldn't help but make that connection as I read it again this this time. You know, like like sometimes it would be a panel that kind of jumped out at me, or or I would say that the character. I know we haven't really talked about the story yet, but the character of of Ben Ulrich in this book is almost exactly the character of Jim Gordon in Dark Knight Returns. I mean, there are oh. some slight differences, but both characters are spend the whole book walking through the streets, thinking to themselves. And both both sort of have a dramatic thing that happens in their personal life. I won't try to spoil things yet. And and I think like um, if you think about those two characters, they're they're not exactly the same, but but they're very very similar, and they kind of play the same role. And I think like I look at the structure of Born Again, where it's the story is kind of switching between uh, different characters. There's a part focused on Matt, and then it will focus on Foggy, then it will focus mm-hmm. on Ben, then it will focus on Karen, and that is very similar to the, the, the sort of structure of Dark Knight Returns. So at the very least, I can see 
the connection in terms of like the time period or, 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 you know, the way he was thinking about producing stories and comics at the time. But, but I almost, I, I would love to just be a fly on the wall and hear him talk about, you know, what, what was the inspiration? Did it start here and, and he, he refined it over there or did yeah. he, was it just a coincidence? I'm not sure. Well, I don't, I'm sure both of you guys know this, but um, when James Cameron was writing, I think it was Terminator 2 and Aliens at the same time, he had two desks in his office uh, for each script. So he would kind of write, you know, Aliens for a little bit and then kind of wheel his chair over and then go write Terminator 2 on the other side of his, his office and then wheel back. So I'm, I'm picturing that now, you know, again, he's got like his, his Daredevil half of the room and his Batman half of the room. But just to play with both these characters at the same time in your life, like, oh my gosh. This is Frank Miller at his peak, so he gets his choice of any characters that he really wants to work on, right? So, I mean, uh, ending up on Daredevil was, it's definitely uh, perfect for him. Uh, but yeah, I wonder why he didn't work on like uh, characters like Spider-Man. Did he work on character like on Spider-Man at all? You know? Yeah, so like I said, he did fill-in issues for, I think, Spectacular Spider-Man, but it guest-starred Daredevil, mm. and that's what brought him in. There's So in, I'm, I'm always thinking back to that same bookstore, the, the Kinya Kunya in Kuala Lumpur. It's actually in the Twin Towers, the world-famous Twin Towers. Uh, that's where the bookstore is. But they had uh, Frank Miller's Spider-Man, and the cover was Spider-Man uh, completely kind of horizontal, like hanging off the side of a wall, by his toe tips and it was just kind of suspended in air. And it was like a very Frank Miller, very inky, very harsh lines, you know, kind of very peak Frank Miller drawing of Spider-Man. And I was always tempted to buy it. It was like this massive, massive hardcover, but I knew inside was the art wasn't that sort of Frank Miller unleashed kind of art style. It was, you know, Frank Miller kind of still playing within the rules and still kind of following the, uh, the house style for Marvel. And, you know, his, his earlier stuff when he was, you know, writing and drawing Daredevil, it is, I mean, it's got some really interesting storytelling, but it is just sort of, you know, what you would expect for 1980s comic book superhero art at the time. And it's not until I think maybe Dark Knight Returns where he really kind of shows us what his view of the world is and his style comes out. Um, But this book had this cover that was drawn in his later style and it was just so tempting, but I knew that inside was sort of these earlier stories that he was really trying just to 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 toe the line and you know color within the lines of what marvel wanted so let's get into the story i i, I want to start off by just talking about the covers because i think the covers are really interesting you know very typically in superhero comics you'll expect to see you know an action shot and it always always killed me as a kid and even now it does like when the cover just looks so cool and the inside art it doesn't match or like the story doesn't even match but what i just found so interesting and so fascinating about the you know i'm looking at all the different issues in comicsology right now the the first issue of this this run you know issue 227 it's it's a cool cover you know daredevil's in full costume he's kind of jumping across the the skyline of new york and there's kind of these crosshairs of a sniper rifle kind of you know they've got daredevil in the crosshairs and this massive figure of kingpin looming over him but then in the next issue it's just this close up of matt murdock and it's this kind of broken glass effect but you don't see daredevil and then the next issue uh, issue 229, you know, we've got this kind of point of view of the thug Turk, but he's wearing a Santa costume. He's got this like arm with a Santa costume coming into the frame and he's holding a knife and we just see Matt Murdock as a broken man, but not in costume. And then in the next issue, it's it's Ben Urich just kind of sitting broken, holding a broken arm. And there's a, a shadow cast that's the outline of Daredevil, but we don't see Daredevil. 
And then the next issue, we see Matt Murdock fighting Daredevil, and that's it, very evocative and very metaphorical, but also very literal because he fights a crazy escaped mental patient in a Daredevil costume. But, you know, after several months of not seeing Daredevil on the cover, we see Daredevil, but it's not even him. And then we don't really see Daredevil, the true Daredevil, until issue 232. And I just think it's so crazy that, you know, Marvel Comics took this chance on not having their their title character on the cover for so long. And it does echo what happens in the story. You know, these issues came out monthly. So for almost half a year, if you were buying these comics monthly, you were buying Daredevil comics without any Daredevil in them. He's, he's Daredevil in costume for five pages in that first issue. And then not again until the very end of, you know, the issue, I think, 231 or 232. It's just... I think that's just so crazy, and I think it really does tell you a lot about what to expect, really, when you're reading this comic. Did you guys notice that with the covers? Yeah, I think it actually is because, yeah, the the story itself just concentrates so much on Daredevil as a person. So to take him out of the costume makes him also kind of vulnerable and human. Yeah, and I think the other thing about the covers is they are just iconic. I mean... The, the the cover of uh, 229 um, is is one of those covers that I I if you I could close my eyes and just picture it you know the, something about the framing of him with the 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 arm coming in with the Santa you know sleeve and the switchblade aimed at him the snow in the mm-hmm. background and his, his his body language he's kind of you can tell he's barely kind of able to stand um, but but the other thing about these 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 covers is each one just has a single word, you know, like there's, there's mm-hmm. nothing on it. It's like daredevil's lowest moment or, you know, like <laughs> what's going to happen now. It's <laughs> like, it just says, you know, each, you know, each issue is a chapter and each issue, each chapter has a title and it just has that one word on the title. So it, it that in and of itself is very sort of evocative too of, of the story and the theming that Miller was going for, but it also is different. It's, it's something it, it stands out, you know, and, it just, you know, that one I was talking about, 229, it just says pariah on it. And that's it. And you're like, if you don't know anything and you're in the comic <laughs> shop and you just see, you're like, what is what is this? What is this book? You know? And and who is this homeless man that is squaring off against this unseen Santa? <laughs> you know, and it's and it's obviously <laughs> one of those Santas who's like on the street, you know, you know, taking money for Salvation Army or whatever. He has a bell in his hand. Yeah. You can see the bell in his hand. So you're like Okay, so we got a Santa here who's like collecting money for the poor or whatever, who's has a switchblade aimed at this guy who can barely stand up and it's it's just snow in the background. It's like what what is going on here? Yeah, and like I said, it's it's just it's unusual. You wouldn't expect it. You would expect, you know, someone Daredevil leaping from building to building or an action scene, and they are just so different and weird, and it does, you know, invite this sort of curiosity and does draw you in. But mm-hmm. I think, Kale, you're totally right that it, this story is very much about finding the man kind of underneath the costume, underneath the mask. And I think that's what Frank Miller does really well with this and, you know, Batman Year One and Dark Knight Returns. And by taking the costume out of the covers, I think he's very clearly telling us, you know, this these covers are probably the most honest covers I've seen in a mainstream superhero comic. You know, this is really setting you up for what to expect. Um, one other thing that I really liked about you know, Josh mentioned the the titles for the chapters. You know, this is broken up into different issues. It was released individually, monthly. But each scene of each issue kind of opens very similar for, you know, most of them. Not everyone follows the pattern. But, you know, in that first issue, we have this kind of God's eye view of Matt Murdock in his really nice brownstone apartment. Everything's kind of going well. 
He's spread out across his bed, and it's got this lovely, big, bold title on his own flames, but it says Apocalypse. But he starts out, you know, everything's going well in his in his comfortable, happy life. And then the next issue, he's kind of been kicked out of his apartment, and he's staying in this crappy motel. And again, we got this God's eye view, but he's now kind of in a fetal position, and the room is cramped. And it's, it's almost like a uh, diorama, like, shoebox cutout. And we're watching him, and, you know, we see the difference. And I love that it's recalling the, the title page from the last issue. And then the next issue... He's curled up, not in the fetal position anymore, but now he's curled up into a ball and he's sleeping in an alley surrounded by other bums and he's just getting smaller and smaller into that frame. Again, this God's eye view. The next issue kind of takes a break from this pattern, but two issues later, no, no, he's it finally... It, it doesn't. The next issue? The, the title page? Yeah. For Born so, Again? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're... T- the, the one reason the alley is pariah, so that's 220... Oh, 229 in 230 the title page is he is in he is recovering and he is and that's the reason i picked it up because i I really wanted to talk about this page is that yes sorry you're right it's born again and he's laying on the bed and the nuns are around him and he's in a christ-like position he's laying yes in the bed healing uh and he's actually posing as in the the position of 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 christ on the cross which is which is very you know we can talk about that in a bit about his catholicism but um yeah, that's that's how that one opens. Which, but which one is it? There's one of the issues that doesn't follow the pattern, and it's really kind of a, oh, it's saved. I'm sorry. Saved. Yeah. So, yeah. so it builds up that he's he's just getting smaller and smaller, and then yes, it is that very Christ-like pose, and he's framed underneath a crucifix, and the nuns are around him. But then it breaks the pattern, which kind of bums me out. Until God and Country, it comes back that he's in bed again, but he's now joined by Karen Page. They've been reunited, but it's no longer this God's eye view looking down. It's it's more of an eye level. And then the last issue doesn't start with that image, but it kind of ends with that image. He's got Nuke defeated and kind of sprawled out uh, on Ben Yurick's desk. So they do go back to it, even though it doesn't you know, quite match. But I just love that that buildup, and it is building. You know, he's getting smaller and smaller, and finally this Christ-like pose of him just, you know, sprawled out, saved, with his arms spread out and his, his legs almost crossed but very tight together. Yeah, I, I, I really noticed this as well. And when I was reading it again, it, it, it sort of struck me as a, a signifier that like, oh, okay, this is a comic where, where he's really thought it through. And the, the thing that, that it really made me sort of think about is there, there are rumors, and I don't know if they're confirmed, but there are rumors that Miller only agreed to do this story if he could give um, Mazcelli uh, full scripts. So... I don't know if that's true or not, but for in, in the comic world, for those that don't know, there's there's the Marvel method uh, of writing comics, which is the writer does the writing and then hands it to the to the, the artist and, and they do the art. That's a simplified version, but but that's sort of how it works. But but ma- the rumor is that the Miller told um, Monticelli like um, or told Marvel, I will only do it if I can give full scripts, which means in in the script that he writes and hands over to the artist, he's also describing, you know, some of the panels and the, the art he's expecting to see on the page. And, and, and I'm not sure if this came from him or if it came from Mazzucelli, but like it is very, very, it really sends a signal that, that this is a story that has, has been thought out and, and plotted carefully and, and themed very specifically. And each, each issue is open with the same sort of imagery to, to tell part of that story. And, and I, I don't know if you if you came across any info on that. I'm really curious if that art sort of 
um, theming came from Miller or or came from Mazzuchelli. I can't say his name. Is it Mazzuchelli? <laughs> you say his name? I, I Googled. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's so interesting that you heard this because there's so many visual things that I connected to Miller's other work. You know, he's got these Venetian blinds making, you know, these really interesting shadows, these horizontal lines across characters' faces, very much like Sin City. There's a some layouts that reminded me of just how many panels he crams into The Dark Knight Returns. And I just found it interesting that I saw all these kind of Miller-esque visual touches, but he wasn't drawing it. But if Josh's information is correct, you know, he was very, very deliberate in dictating what was being drawn, even though he wasn't the one who was actually putting pen to paper. But I, that makes sense to me. Just how many things I see that are like, Oh, this is, this is a Miller flourish. This is a Miller touch, but through someone else's hand. Um, Kale, what did you think about the writing, the storylines, the, the characterization, you know, the, the arc. As I mentioned before, I, I loved the fact that they made him human and typical to, to, you know uh, what Marvel usually does, and I, I really like the character arc. We always love to see our heroes kind of suffer a little bit. The inclusion of the Kingpin uh, as a villain, uh, I loved. Uh, I love the Kingpin as a villain, even as a Spider-Man villain. You know, and um, I'm also kind of happy that they uh, borrowed elements from this to for, for the uh, Netflix Daredevil show as well. Uh, I think Vincent D'Onofrio as a uh, Kingpin. So good. Overall, I, I see the kind of Christ-like arc uh, for Daredevil. You know, he's been uh, betrayed by Judas, I would say, in this case, Karen. And mm. then kind of Karen as a character is kind of a weak character uh, to me. And even uh, at the end, I think she was forgiven way too easily. <laughs> uh, but uh Yeah. I, I I love this book. This is great. This is something that uh, I can read over and over again, much like Watchmen. Yeah, wow, I, I, high praise. Yeah, that's high praise. I I would say a lot of what you just went, I would agree with. I think it's um, I think there's a lot. So there's a lot there. I think the Catholicism's interesting. You know, Matt Murdock, they gave him red hair and they gave him an Irish name, but they didn't really talk about you know, his faith or Catholicism until this series, this, 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 not this series, but this storyline, it's really born again. that cemented that Matt is a, you know, if not practicing a, he's Catholic. And, and then ever Mm -hmm. since then it's been incorporated into who he is as a character. I think that's, that's very interesting that the, the story that established that is such a heavy sort of, um, heavy take and it really really sort of depends on that um you know right from the theme of born again but but also to like the nuns and his and his mom and you know the re- the the resurrection kind of storyline of, of, of him i think is very fascinating that um that then that became such a key part of his, his character you know he he ever since then has always sort of referenced his faith or had had storylines you know kevin smith's mm-hmm. story sort of delved into that and 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 many others have sort of talked about you know you know his his feelings of you know forgiveness for what he does or not confessing sins the catholic guilt which weighs heavy on him very often um and i just think that's an that's an interesting aspect of his character that was really established in this in this book and it, I mean, we'll talk about the art in a second, but like there's just heavy, heavy religious iconography that hopefully we'll dive into in a little bit. Um, 
Josh and I have had this conversation many years ago. I don't remember if you remember this conversation as well as I do, Josh, but we talked about how religion, especially, you know, very specifically Christianity is depicted in Marvel comics versus DC comics. And you and I spoke about how DC literally shows characters going to to heaven as like an actual location that they visit. And it is just very, very much <laughs> the part of DC's makeup. But it's interesting that Daredevil is kind of, you know, probably the most overtly Christian or most overtly Catholic character. I know that Marvel also has a very proud history of uh, characters from the Jewish faith. Yeah. But, um, but you're, you're right. That, yeah. Yeah, I, I was just going to say you're right. It, it it's very, um, you know, and Kale kind of mentioned this earlier that the philosophy differences between DC, you know, and those who don't know, DC is Batman, Wonder Woman, um, Superman, you know, Green Lantern. Like like that that philosophy is really sort of gods amongst among men, and so the 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 superheroes are these untouchable, unattainable, uh, amazing, uh, you know huge sort of pantheon of heroes and then and then it's fascinating that then they incorporated that and angels and god they they are part yeah. of our canon <laughs> <laughs> it's like well okay there's no we're really hanging a lantern on it yep they are in that that level and then marvel is the very human kind of take that the every every person as uh as as trying you know struggling to be a hero and the the hero that didn't ask for it and and so it, it is a lot more secular in that way there is a character in the marvel universe called mephisto which is sort of a devil-like character um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned before that you know there's that 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 run where marvel or sorry daredevil goes to hell with the inhumans and but but it's not ever sort of depicted as a a you know as a um analog to the real hell i mean there are some demons and things like that but it's very very sort of light on that mythology they never talk about heaven uh individuals may have a faith um whether that's um christian or 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 jewish and and most recently with ms marvel you know she's she's muslim and Mm -hmm. um really talks a lot about her her muslim faith but in in terms of the continuity of the universe there they don't talk about that in that way and so um it, it is very interesting that that they really in this story did focus so much on his Catholicism uh, as as a main sort of theme throughout the story because it wasn't something that Marvel really usually does. And that goes back to, I can't remember who said it, I think maybe all three of us at some point, but so much of what we think of as being Daredevil comes from this run. And that's another thing that's just, yeah, Daredevil's always been Catholic, hasn't he? No, it's it's from this run, and but it's just so ingrained now. I... I mean, Josh, you said something earlier that I picked up on. I made a note that you said, I don't know if you two have read the last two issues, which I thought was interesting because the last two issues really do, they don't really connect as closely, I think. You know, that's why I was confused with the, that progression of that overhead God's eye view of Matt Murdock getting smaller and smaller until he's, you know, sprawled out and born again. Because the last two issues do feel a little bit tacked on. It's so much more interesting to see him kind of fall and slowly crawl back to who he is and rediscover who he is. And then when he kind of is reunited with Karen and dons the costume again and then goes to fight Nuke, it is, you know, a little bit anticlimactic, especially because he's not really the one who defeats Nuke. It was kind of a bummer that Captain America really is the one who saves the day and defeats Nuke and is really coming to the rescue at the end. And I just didn't really love the ending. I thought it kind of petered out a little bit. What what do you think about that, Josh? I agree. I think that um, 
honestly, I don't really see it as part of the same story. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's really not. It's really like you know. I think they said, oh man, we got to release a trade paperback. Uh, five issues. That's not enough. Uh, these kind of can go in here too because it's a two issue story arc. So I I think that that I don't really consider it as part of the actual story, even though it's in the <laughs> in the trade paperback with it. Um, but I I think Luke uh, Nuke Nuke is a lame character. It's 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 kind of. It's it's Frank Miller at his hackiest, you know. I mean, Frank Miller can be really great, and he can also be pretty hacky, and that's sort of I, what I see with with Nuke. But I, I, th- I, I do think that one of the things about Frank Miller, and it comes through in this whole uh, book, is that the city, you know, is really a character. I know you talked about that on your Sin City <laughs> episode, but it is a character in this book. I mean, it is really really uh, a big part of this that the whole book is people wandering around the city and beautiful you know drawings of of new york and it's snowing and there's always snow but but the city he's depicting is really decrepit and filthy and falling apart in danger everywhere and now it was new york in the 80s i get it but then you know at the very end nuke shows up and 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 he's just like i'm just going to start blowing things up everywhere out of nowhere and and I really sort of had the impression that that was sort of Frank Miller, just like, you know, he, 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 his, his grouchy side of his personality came out and he's like, yeah, this goddamn city, nukes just gonna start blowing <laughs> it all up, you know? And of course he's the bad guy and he gets stopped. But, but, you know, I, it, it was shocking cause it was like, you know, we had this very personal story and then, and then this guy at the very end just shows up and, you know, with a rocket launcher and just starts blowing up hell's kitchen for no reason whatsoever you know yeah and and so i agree i i i'm not a big fan of that coda with with nuke i i i i see what they were trying to do with it and i see you know at the very end where he sort of brings nuke and and delivers them to ben and it's sort of okay you know there's gonna be some connections to uh kingpin so he might eventually get some comeuppance from this or whatever but but i think it it's like we we don't really need that um to make the story effective and i i would say that it's stronger without it you know i this time when i read it um i actually i actually was sort of not not super excited about like i i liked the story but i was reading it through like a modern lens and 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 i was like you know the story is not quite doing it for me in the way it had in the past and i don't really know why um i think part of it is you know other you know, artists and, and writers have kind of done similar stories, but they've kind of, you know, tweaked it or they've sort of perfected it a little more until I got to that that last issue, Saved. So issue, what is that, 231? Is that right? The um, last issue in your version of the story, not yeah, in, the, exactly. in the trade paperback. <laughs> yeah, it's not in the trade paperback. Before the, the nuke shows up. The, so the, the, the issue Saved, 231, I, I think kind of, just pulls it all together. I was, I was like, okay, you know, Matt's down on his luck. Karen's, you know, a, a junkie and on her sort of, you know, path. And Ben, Ben Eric, Eric, Eric. God, I can't say names today. <laughs> he's uh, <laughs> Eric. Oh man, he's he's doing his thing. And then, but it's all kind of like, okay, okay. And then I think the that issue two thirty one just pulls it all together and i don't know if we we haven't really kind of talked through the story yet so i don't know if we want to go there yet but i i have a lot to say about that particular issue i i mean i'm just flipping through that issue right now and just the storytelling is just superb just the way that it builds the momentum and brings together all these different storylines and it really does kind of climax 
emotionally, you know, these two have been reunited and it does kind of tell you everything you know you you need to know about their emotional journey. Everything else is just him kind of tying up loose ends as Daredevil. But it's I think it's just really interesting, Josh, for you, the story kind of ends with these two characters being reunited and he hasn't put on the, the Daredevil costume yet. He won't put the Daredevil costume on in the story until the very last page of the following issue. That's a good point. So if you were you know, if you were the editors at Marvel putting this trade paperback out, you would be like, no, no, he's he's reunited with her. We know that he's going to be Daredevil and that's enough for you. But you miss out that very triumphant full page image, that one single panel at the end of the next issue where he's stepping out of the flames and it's got the title saying next Armageddon and he's reaching out towards <laughs> the reader and he's finally wearing that Daredevil costume, which I felt was very, very kind of a heroic moment, very climactic and you know, I felt very earned, but it's interesting that I, I agree with you. I think, you know, we've reached the, the emotional climax in the story. Everything we need to know does wrap up two issues earlier and they've got to just, okay, let's kind of reset the status quo so that Daredevil can continue as a, as a superhero comic once I leave and go do some other interesting things. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, that if, if you end it here, yeah, he hasn't actually put on the costume. I didn't even think of that until you just mentioned it. Have you guys all seen the Daredevil TV show by any chance? Yes. Oh. Season three. Yeah. I haven't seen season three. I, season one came out around my birthday one year and we watched it in two days straight. And it just felt like a birthday present to me because, <laughs> you know, we talked about in Sin City how closely they adapted the the panel layouts match the, the frame so well. But I think the Daredevil TV show, especially that first season, it, I think is one of the best adaptations. Just they got the tone, they got the character right in a way I've never seen before. And I just really, really felt like they nailed it here. And mm-hmm. I haven't, I haven't finished season two and I haven't uh, seen season three, but that first season is phenomenal. Right. So season three borrows heavily from born again and they, uh, yeah, I wanted to, talk about how they handled the pretend daredevil uh, mm-hmm. in the book versus the TV show but we can leave that for later I'm if you don't want to hear spoilers spoilers <laughs> I'm sorry man I'll catch up I'm sorry I'll, I'll catch up in time to talk about the next daredevil book yeah I, okay. I I agree with the TV show I think it's it's very good I will say uh, one of my criticisms of it is in this in the second season, they were like, oh, what makes this show sort of gritty and adult is like hyper-violence. Let's just double down on that. And then like, oh, Daredevil, what's good about him? Ninjas. And I'm like, whoa, wait, what? Like, you know, <laughs> I, that wasn't where you're going on the first season. And then all of a sudden they show up. But but the second season, I think, has a really good moment. And I don't know if you've gotten it to it yet, Matt. Um, I don't want to spoil it. But but it is a moment that's pulled right from the... It's, it's a single episode and it's pulled right from the comics but ironically it's pulled from a punisher comic um instead okay. of a daredevil comic and and it and and also ironically it's really really good but also ironically it is by two of the creators that i just loathe uh, i know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> you know what i'm gonna say because we've talked about this before but garth Ennis and steve dylan i cannot stand either one of them and it's it's from their their Marvel Knights run on the Punisher. There, there's a great scene where the Punisher and and Daredevil interact um, in their comic, and they pull that in the in the show. And it is such uh, I think it encapsulates Daredevil's sort of struggle in that he he struggles with like okay I'm a vigilante but I'm also a lawyer 
and have I crossed this line or have I crossed that line? And, you know, and the Punisher's like, whatever, you've, you've, cro-, you know, and I don't want to spoil it, but it's, it's a very interesting sort of, sort of dissection and introspection on, on, on what is the character of Daredevil and what does, what does Daredevil stand for? And, you know, where w- he asks for forgiveness and is that enough or not? And, and, and that kind of ties into his Catholicism as well. So I get that second season watch, Matt, you, you got to see it. I, I know exactly which episode or sorry, what issue you're talking about. And I think I made it that far in Daredevil season two, where uh, Punisher is going to snipe uh, a, a crime Lord and Daredevil's tied up, but he has a one bullet in a gun and he can either shoot the Punisher Yes. But he has to kill the Punisher or the Punisher is going to kill someone else. And, yeah. yeah. And the gun is, is taped to his hand. It's like duct taped to like yeah. his hand with his finger in the trigger. And it's like, what are you going to do? You know? And it, it, it's, it's, it's a great episode in, in, uh, in a series, a season full of ninjas. Uh, yes. <laughs> anyway. I, I want to talk about the, the page layouts. If, if you guys are both, you know, is there anyone, does anyone want to say anything else about the writing or can I go to, page layouts as a kind of transition into the art. Uh, I just want to say one, one last thing. I, I think the going back to that issue two thirty one saved. So, you know, Matt's just been decimated, gone through all of this and, you know, he, he gets sort of revived by his mom, but I think the writing on, on that last issue and saved where there, there is this symbolic part of the story where he is fighting daredevil up on the rooftop and it's not him obviously it's not a it's not like a metaphysical battle which you do see in comics it's an actual sort of psychopath that the kingfin has hired and put in a daredevil costume uh to try to frame him some more matt is fighting him on the roof and it's it's such good writing it's such a symbolic sort of depiction of you know what the whole struggle was in the beginning of the story matt is literally saying he doesn't need anything but daredevil the story starts out with him pushing every single person mm. in his life away from him he pushes away glory his 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 girlfriend and pushes away foggy his, he's lost his job he's you know and then that's even before kingpin starts to sort of attack on him and he loses everything but but even before kingpin starts daredevil you know matt's already saying I, all i need is daredevil i don't need anything else i'm 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 just this is who i am uh and and the whole time, you know, he's he's like, he gets then then he really loses everything, and then and then he gets sort of nursed back to health by his mother, who is a nun, and and he goes back to his, his the gym, and he, he reconnects to his mom, he reconnects to his dad through his sort of fighting in the gym. Um, oh, I didn't even make that connection. Yeah, you know, he reconnects with his mom in church, and then yep. reconnects with his dad, his 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 other church, the, his other church, the gym where he trained. Oh wow, that's right. You know, his dad ended up being the boxer. He goes to Ben, and he and he and he follows Ben around, and sort of reconnects with Ben. And so he's starting to make these connections back to his life, and 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 it's and it's really about the human connections in his life. And then he like literally goes on the roof and is fighting Daredevil. You know, the 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 series starts out with the writing. He he's literally talking to himself about all he needs is Daredevil, and that's who he is. Then on the roof at the very end, he's like, no, he's literally fighting Daredevil. And it's such a symbolic sort of fighting to regain himself and regain his life again and wrestle it sort of away from Daredevil. And then the a culmination of that is, you know, saving, saving Karen, you know, and, and they have a history, you know, of course, you know, in the past. And so I, I just think the writing there is so good and, and really is what sort of, I think sort of saves this story is that final issue pulling all of those pieces together 
and then culminating on a very literal battle that is symbolic for sort of the battle that's kind of going on inside him as he's going through this whole story. Yeah, it's it's very poetic, but also, uh, you know how he pretty much defeats the other Daredevil? Uh, Through kicking. Yay! <laughs> yeah! <laughs> um, just as you're talking about that, Josh, like it's handled so well in compared to... I'm thinking of another example where they tried to do this in superhero media with... Uh, I'm sure one of you can tell me which Superman film was it where Clark Kent and Superman get divided up into two characters and there's kind of an evil Superman and a good Superman. Oh, is that three? I think it's three. It's three or four. So, which, but whichever one it is, it's just so hokey, but they're, they're trying to do this, you know, you know, his, his own worst enemy and grappling with who am I and, you know, you know, the two sides of my personality, but it's just handled so much better here on this page. And it's just handled with so much more reverence than it is in that schlocky Superman three. Yeah, that that I'll tell you what though. It's a quick sidebar. Superman three scared the living crap out of me. Do you guys remember the scene in that movie? So for those that don't know, it's a silly movie. Richard Pryor's in it, and you know they they mix kryptonite and it splits Superman off, whatever. But the part that's freaky is there's like a supercomputer, and at the very end, it starts to sort of take over. And like everybody's running away from it and the computer like sends out its tendrils and pulls one of the women back into it and then puts a bunch of like cybernetic stuff on her. And then she comes out as like a like android robotic thing. Oh, my God. As a kid, I was like (laughs) screaming and it was so scary and I was like freaked out. If you watch it now, it's so hokey and ridiculous and not scary at all. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's so hokey. Oh my gosh. Anyway. That's funny that that scared you. Like <laughs> I was terrified of the Batman from 1989 because the Joker, but you know, I, I would argue that that is still legitimately terrifying. I don't know if anyone would mm-hmm. call that, that cyborg woman legitimately terrifying. Oh, but. not at all. I'm a little wimpy boy. You know, you, you, you're, you're right. <laughs> Joker was scary. She was not scary, but as a kid, whoo boy. Anyway, Josh, I could relate because, uh, what, it, like I when I was I don't know maybe it was six or seven, uh, and these kids uh, who were much older decided to play uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, one of the movies where uh, this motorcycle kind of melds with a man that's riding it, uh, and I remember that scene so specifically because it freaked me the hell out, and it's similar <laughs> because again it's like a machine and a human being kind of like forcibly becoming one, right. and. <laughs> Uh, I actually recall this the, the scene from Z- Superman three as well, and uh, yeah, I, I saw Superman three much when I was much older, so it didn't affect me as much. But uh, <laughs> I, I I get where you're coming from, though. So <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk about the page layouts, and one thing that I thought was just interesting is you know typically on a comic book page you'll kind of stick with one scene, you know, one kind of location or one sequence per page, but Miller has just so many storylines and, you know, we talked about them all kind of converging in this issue, the 231 saved, but he's just got all these issues layered. And we like, and Josh said, I think we check in with Karen for a little bit. We check in with Ben, we check in with Foggy, we check in with Matt. But one thing, I don't know if either of you noticed this, but um, he kind of delineates between the different storylines by setting the panels a little bit off from each other. So if you see several storylines on one page, you know, the Kingpin, all of the panels for the Kingpin storyline, maybe going across the page in one tier will be kind of like far left justified. 
And then if we check in with Foggy, you know, the panels are just scooted over, just pushed a little bit over. So they're just a little bit further uh, to the right of the page. And then if we check in with Karen, we've gone a little bit further over. And then if we end the page with Matt, then we've gone kind of all the way right justified. And it's just this cool thing he does where he's kind of cluing us in to where we are at any given time where he's got just the margins are kind of shifting and changing uh, as we go from storyline to storyline. And then it kind of culminates. There's this one sequence where Ben is just completely, you know, overwhelmed with everything that's going on and everything's kind of coming to a head and building, building, building. And then he kind of breaks this very rigid, very uniform sort of panel layout. And Message Kelly just kind of layers these these moments on top of each other. Kale, did you notice this this layout, this you know kind of uh, shifting margins? No, I actually didn't. Um, now I'm just looking at it right now, and uh, it looks yeah, so interesting. It, I actually also want to talk to you about like all the uh, action scenes and the fact that they use uh, not to. Sorry, I feel like I'm just distracting you from your point matt <laughs> but i i am getting distracted by just reading uh not just the panels but like i, I the use of like sound effects yes <laughs> in this book uh and going back to sin city and the lack of sound effects and here there's like so many sound effects but you're uh, wrong kale just... I, I i i've been kicking myself for the last couple of weeks that i didn't mention this sin city has some wonderful sound effects and I love that Frank Miller really embraces sound effects. And if Josh's research is right, that he was really, really very specific in the script, the sound effects are coming from him. And I, th- I think if you take a look at those pages from Sin City, Kale, you'll be, you'll be surprised at how many sound effects there actually are. I think he really does have a love of sound effects. Now I have to reread Sin City. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, but what did you notice about the sound effects? Just jumping ahead, um, what's what struck you? Because there's two things that I really want to talk about the sound effects scale. Oh yeah. Uh, well, I'm looking at this scene where Karen gets punched by her uh, pimp boyfriend. Yeah, I'm looking. At, I'm looking theme, at the same one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a theme with uh, Frank Miller. Uh, you know, men hitting women. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, they, he like puts in like the thwack in like bright red. Uh, yes. or the, like why you know, in the, in the newsroom, um, uh, at the daily bugle, uh, and you know, he, for whatever reason puts in ring for, for like phones ringing in the background, uh, you know, things like that. It's in like all, it's all in bright red. I, and I like, I'm scrolling through here and, um, yeah, even like in the fight scenes, of course, uh, a lot of faps, uh, when, uh, uh, Daredevil is, let's see, or Mad Murdock is punching a uh, a heavy bag here. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just, it, you know, red or yellow, I guess, are is the theme here for, for just like loud sound effects. Yeah, I think it's interesting you said for whatever reason he has the rings, but I think sound effects kind of get a bad rap in modern comics. And I, with my lessons, I do a lot of comics making lessons and comics analytical lessons with students in schools. And I just speak to about the power of how comics can really make me feel as a reader, like I'm in the world of the story. You know, it's, it's a great way of really placing me in that environment. And I think it's, I noticed the same thing that a lot of the sound effects are this bold, solid red, the same color they use for Daredevil. And I, I, I love the costume. I think Daredevil's got one of the coolest costumes. I actually have a tailored version. I went to a private tailor and had a Daredevil costume made for Halloween. I think it's just a cool, cool costume. 
Um, you, you look good in that so, costume, by the way. Thank you, my friend. Um, <laughs> side story for that costume. This was when I was teaching at a school in Kuwait. And uh, we had Halloween. It was always a big deal. And like the elementary kids would dress up in Halloween and do a parade through the school. But one year, someone, one of the families didn't like the fact that we're having Halloween. You know, it is seen as, you know, kind of a evil sort of celebration. We're glamorizing evil characters sometimes. So, you know, not all cultures enjoy Halloween. So someone reported us to the Department of Education. And I was walking around school in my Daredevil costume, really proud, showing it off. And my principal runs up and says, the Ministry of Education's on their way. You're dressed as the devil. Go and hide right now. So I had to hide in my office (laughs) because, you know, you know, we would know that the DD, I'm not just the devil, I'm daredevil, but anyone else who's not a comic (laughs) fan would just see the devil walking around and the principal is trying to say, no, 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 no Halloween here. (laughs) (laughs) The the one thing I really liked about the sound effects in this book, he does, I mean, I say he, you know, this team, but I think they are working just so cohesively. This team does such cool storytelling with sound effects. Um, you know, they, uh, I love when he's like regaining his powers and he's kind of reaching out to the city. And Josh mentioned how the city is a big character and he's got like, his powers are reaching out so far that you see like New York from like this kind of bird's eye view and there's birds and we got these big loud caw caws and he's getting closer to where he is in the church. And like, we've got these honks and he's like kind of tuning in really focusing. And then the church bells ringing and he just uses these massive sound effects as, as a really, really cool way of, you know, him regaining his, his senses and his powers and command of his powers. But there's just this really cool sort of um, moment where nuke is you know, kind of mowing down all these soldiers in a military base. And there's all these really loud kablam sound effects, kablam, kablam, kablam. And then it gets interrupted with a kapwing. And then there's this close up <laughs> of Captain America's shield and the rhythm of the kablam, 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 kapwing. And we see the shield reflecting these bullets and it's just another kapwing. And then Captain America slams nuke into a wall with this loud whack. And I just love the rhythm they're building with the sounds. It's very similar to when, um, Ben Urich and Glory are almost killed by the corrupt cop and corrupt prison officer. And Ben has to leap into action. He's beating a cop to death with this whoomp, whoomp, whoomp sound effects. And Glory is taking photos of the whole thing. And this click, click, click sound effect. And there's this really great ping pong back and forth. Josh, what do you think of the sound effects in this book? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think Daredevil, uh, if nobody, if, if people are listening, they don't know, he's blind. Um he uh, he has his heightened senses, and so I think the use of sound in a Daredevil book is is always interesting to kind of pay attention to. It's it's always a sign um, if the writer and the artist remember, you know, oh yeah, that's right, Daredevil heightened senses, and I think they they do kind of there there are sort of panels in this series where they do remember it. I think they kind of forget. I I will say one of my criticisms of this story, uh, well, I have two, is that they don't really sort of it's really they don't talk about every issue starts with him saying the story of how he became daredevil <laughs> and then almost never does he ever reference that he's blind or has hidden senses or anything <laughs> almost almost never so it's like well come on that would have been a little fun but and the other criticism i have is there's there's no lawyering in here i, I always think that's a wasted opportunity in a daredevil book the 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 dichotomy between being on each side of the law is one of the most fascinating things of this of this character and, and none of that's there but anyway my point, actual point, is that the the sound effects on a Daredevil book are a great way to 
it's a great excuse to use sound effects. And there is some great ones. So when he first wakes up in in the convent or in that church in the basement, um, you know, there there is a, a, a page is just full of sound effects. You know, he's laying in bed. And, you know, there's the caw, caw of the, of the birds and the honk, 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 beep, beep, beep. I love beeps of the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the taxi cabs and a bong of the, the bell. And it's really, you know, it's, it, it really kind of drives home. You know, Matt has these super senses and he's sort of passed out in this, in this bed trying to sort of recover and wake up. And he's being inundated with the sounds of the city kind of invading his space. So I, I actually pay close attention to sound effects and when I'm reading Daredevil because um, done well, I think they can be a huge uh, addition to a story and, and a good excuse for, for the creators to, to use sound effects to great effect. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting. Like you say, you pay close attention and I don't know if I pay so much close attention as much as kind of just kind of feel them. Like, I don't know if I'm literally sounding out every sound effect. I think it is just kind of builds this kind of soundscape where you get the feel of that womph and that click, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. know if you, you did a pretty good ping just a second ago. <laughs> yeah. You really made everything come alive, Matt. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, longtime listeners have been treated to uh, my Scottish accent, my German translation, and now my, my literal sound effects. <laughs> so you're welcome. Um, the, I want to go back to that. Just, we talked about the origin, just how many times he hits the origin, but, you know, they do. I'm looking at the very last page, and I just love that after so many issues, starting with his origin, they end this entire run with another recap of his origin. <laughs> just in case, you know, just hey, before you go, do you know who Daredevil is? Let's just tell you on your way out the door. But he does say in this last origin, I was blinded by radio radiation. So it does bring it up. But my favorite recap is that third issue, Pariah, I think it is. He starts, you know, he's, he's totally broken. It's his lowest point, and he's there's these great like long horizontal panels of him like trying to close his eyes and shut the world out, but he's flashing back to his origin and it's all these like black horizontal panels mimicking how he was blind at the time as a young boy. And then they've got these big, large, bold purple sound effects or not sound effects because it's the people talking, but they're just invading this darkness. And I think this is just such a powerful way of putting us in his experiences. You know, we're not seeing the world through his eyes so much as hearing the world through his ears and I love when comics create that strong connection and that strong sense of empathy. And this is just such a cool way of retelling his story. And I, I know why they're retelling his origin in every issue because, you know, that old adage that any comic could be someone's first comic. And so, you know, you got to catch people up somehow. It does get a little crazy when you collect them into a trade paperback like this. But for my money, that, that third retelling, <laughs> once you get to that third one, I think that is kind of one of the definitive ones. It's done in such a cool visual way it's it's very striking i i don't love the the style of the art it's very you know kind of typical what i would expect from a 1980s mainstream superhero comic and it's kind of a bummer because i think Matsukelli, when they jump over to dc and do batman year one he gets a little bit more kind of graphic and it's a little bit more a little bit less sort of realistic and a bit more sort of figurative and a bit less literal and then some of his later work um Josh, have you read Asterios Polyp? Oh, uh, no, I haven't. I, I, oh, my gosh. It's just, it's amazing. Kale, have you read this book? I have not. No, it's the first I've heard it's, of it. It's David Mazzucchelli writing and drawing it, but it's just, it's so graphic. And like every page just has so many interesting storytelling choices. It's about an architect and 
uh, he's a professor at a, at a university and at this university party, all the professors start morphing into their, their subjects. So he's drawn in very geometric graphic shapes and then he meets his eventual wife who's like a, an artist and she's in these very fluid, very kind of sketchy lines and just so many really interesting, very, very bold storytelling, very bold graphic choices. And, you know, this art here, it's very serviceable for me. But what I think he does do, which is really cool, and maybe this is the Frank Miller script influence, there's some really cool storytelling things, like those setting those panels off just a little bit. You know, these big, large chunks where it's these black horizontal panels kind of showing us his his blindness. There's a few times where Matt Murdock is kind of losing it. It gets kind of very sketchy. And I love that kind of stuff where he's just, he's pushing it and he's he's moving further and further away from what would be expected and there's some really great page layouts with some really good flow where, you know, there's a scene I'm thinking of where Matt shows up to take out the evil nurse and Yurik is trying to rescue his wife who's being hanged. But like Matt's punch is coming across the page and that really breaks the panel, but then leads your eye down and really just creates a strong sense of page flow across the page, moving from information to information. We spoke about that that scene where everything kind of builds, but there's like more and more panels and they're getting tighter and more compact and it's just really building this sense of pacing. So for me, you know, the, the art style is not as appealing to me as like the storytelling. I mean, what? how do you feel about the art style, Josh? I, I agree. I, I think that the, the things that stand out for me in the art like you said, end up being things that very feel very Miller, you know, the, the noir aspects of the blinds, you know, across people's faces and occasionally some really sort of black, black, dark shadows and, and shading that really sort of gives some good definition. But, but it is, it is an eighties book and, and you always kind of got to, <laughs> you got to give these books a break. Um, I, I think the thing in the, in the art in this book that always stands out to me is is the color because um the colors sometimes the background colors seem kind of off and i don't know what that's all about but it's like they'll be walking down like a green hallway and it's and it's just very striking mm. but but not necessarily in a good way it sort of like stands out a little bit and so like i i, I but again i think that's an 80s influence kind of thing um i i would say that that it's 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 not super impressive in terms of the art except for what i i i guess what i'm saying is i agree with you the the motion like like drawing your eye across and that stuff is is done well but in terms of composition but in terms of the actual art itself um there are moments it stands out and then there's other moments where it 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 just sort of feels you know fine i guess the word is fine serviceable yeah i mean (laughs) it's it's clear yeah Kale, how do how do you feel about the art style? I mean, you you know, you guys are a little bit older than me. Like you came to comics a little bit before me. So is this right up your alley, or does this feel dated to you as well? Yeah, I mean, obviously the art is a little dated uh, compared to let's say the art and comics these days. But uh, yeah, I, I still like it. It's it's so striking and it's so like eighties and retro. You know, like there's. Um, there's a panel where they heavily use cross hatching and I haven't seen cross hatching in a comic, uh, like this in a while. Like I, I was thinking back to like the, uh, detective comics issues I used to read as a kid and, mm-hmm. uh, the type of art that was there. And this is kind of reminded me of that. And, uh, yeah, no, they, 
I, I like the story. I really like the art. I like the way that um, even the way that women are, are drawn in, in this comic book and they're like realistic. Like, let's say, uh, you know, uh, Ben Eric's uh, wife, uh, you know, she's not she's just a regular looking woman. You know, it's uh, not hyper sexualized. Like, let's say in the 90s, uh, that person mm-hmm. would be uh, drawn very kind of in a sexy way, you know, just because that was the uh, style of the time. Um yeah, these are all like uh, realistic looking people. And I think it also speaks to the tone that maybe Frank Miller was trying to get at with the story as well uh, to make these people humanistic. Like they're just super like just regular people off, uh, you know, that you would see anywhere in New York. And, uh, you know, of course, Frank Miller puts, you know, these people through uh harrowing ordeals but uh yeah they're just supposed to be like normal people and again relates to daredevil as a street level hero you know and i i I feel like i was a little heart sounded a little harsher on the art than i meant to (laughs) now that i kind of think about (laughs) it and kale you maybe sort of influenced me a bit but but yeah i think you're actually right like like there are there are some really um human qualities but then he also can go big and like when 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 matt's apartment building blows up you know and you you sort of see him fly back and then the reflection of the fire in his in his sunglasses that's actually really really good art and so i i want to i want to take it back i'm not going to say serviceable well those weren't my words those were matt's words i'm not going to say fine (laughs) i'm gonna say it's it's good it's good art um i i wonder you know if 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 a bit of it is just you know, it is a more eighties style art where where and, and the coloring as well. Like the, the the technology, this is pre-image, this is, you know, the the technology for printing colors it was not quite um what it what it became. Um so so yeah. I I'll I'll renege a bit and say that yeah, the art's the art, art's pretty good. I I just think it's interesting. I'm looking at that page that you're describing, Josh, where he sees his building being blown up and that reflection and again, what I like about this is not so much, I mean, the drawing is fantastic. He's, he's very accomplished. You know, he can draw human figures and human faces for sure, you know, better than I ever could. I know that. But what I like about this image, this page is the, again, the storytelling, the layout, he's, the panel borders are these kind of jagged, very rough, almost look like torn shreds of paper that have been kind of pasted on the page. And that, to me, just creates such a strong feeling, you know, in the experiencing the story. You know, he goes from these very, you know, very smooth, drawn out rectangle panels. And then he's got this one page where everything explodes, but the panel borders are kind of being torn up and just torn to shreds. And and that's what I like about his art. I like the storytelling that Masekeli is doing more so than... Is very nice and very very accomplished and very technically proficient art. But I just I want the two of you to check out Asterios Polyp, where he really is just the chain is off and he's just really going. It's just so graphic and just so much more dynamic and just so much more unique. And I think a lot more of his personality is coming through. Where I think I feel like he's maybe you know tr- again trying to fit into that sort of what is expected of an eighties comic. Hmm. But I, I do think it's interesting that he's. This panel where he's watching his building being blown up and there's a reflection of his sunglasses of the building burning. But Matt Murdock is blind. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's, so he can any feel other character. It. He can feel the heat. <laughs> but, 
but to show the reflection of what a character is seeing in their sunglasses, that's a very cool way of like showing the character's reaction and showing what the character is seeing. But it doesn't work when a character is blind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. That's true. One question I had about the color. I mean, Josh, did you read right now? Did you read this on Comixology? Uh, I, I read it on the Marvel Unlimited app, but it was a digital version. Okay. Yeah, so I read digital. Kale, did you read this digitally as well just now? Yeah, Comixology. Yeah, so the I, I have a feeling, because I do own this as a trade paperback, but it's in Canada with the rest of my collection, and I don't think the, the coloring... It feels like this version, the digital version, the coloring has been kind of updated. It, it looks a bit more slick, and there's some things there. There's like this one panel where Captain America is kind of on a rooftop and the background is kind of like the sun setting and it's all just kind of done in color and it jumps out as really not fitting with the rest of it. There's no line art around the, 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 the sun or the clouds. So I have a feeling that this has been digitally recolored after the fact. And so I yes. think there's some choices that don't quite jive with the, the traditional sort of eighties art. So I think that's maybe one disconnect I was just thinking that because when I was reading the uh, rereading the book uh, for for this episode, I noticed that like the colors are so clean compared mm-hmm. to what I remember '80s comics looking like. You know, it was it, it seemed like they had gone back and retouched a lot of it. It just looks a little too polished sometimes. And another thing, I mean, Kale, you mentioned there's some scenes where there's some cross hatching, but what I like are the scenes where they've got this kind of zipatone effect or zip tone which is this kind of like those little dots that kind of, uh, you know, the dots kind of making grays, but, you know, they've got, they use it for like flashbacks. So there's the scene in the first issue where Foggy Nelson is in court and it switches from full color and really kind of solid blacks to this sort of, you know, little, little, little tiny dots. If you really, really look really closely or zoom in on comiXology. And that is also, I think, has its origins in manga. You see it quite often in Japanese comics. So I think it is kind of cool that they're bringing in this kind of stylistic choice. And again, I don't know if that was Miller's insistence or not, but it is a cool way of differentiating between, you know, what's happening immediately and what's kind of this flashback or what Kingpin is kind of being told in the past. Josh, yes. talk to us about the Catholic imagery. You know, we've ah. got this image of of him in a very Christ-like pose, but also, you know, that uh, when Maggie, the nun, who is revealed eventually to be his mother, kind of finds him and cradles him, it is very much taken from Michelangelo's statue, the Pieta. And Josh, I was just hoping you could kind of, you know, speak to more of this sort of uh, Christian imagery and the Catholic imagery that is pervasive in this book. Yeah, yeah. So I, my, my sort of, my sort of connection with Catholicism is I, I was not raised Catholic, but my my dad's side of the family is very, very Irish and very Irish Catholic, and. Um, you know, uh, growing up, it was very much like if, if we were going to visit grandma and grandpa, uh, we were, we were going to, to church. And, and so I, I was fascinated because I, I have sort of been surrounded by Catholicism, but as an outsider, not like w- within it in terms of growing up with it. And so I've always sort of l- like lived with the imagery and looked at it, but looked at it through that lens. And then I even went to a college that was very Catholic and, um, to the point where, a, an order of Benedictine monks uh, lived on campus, and they they are a self-sustaining monk community that um, they have their own fire monk fire department. They have their own power plant. They are, you know, it's 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 a it was fascinating. So I've I have sort of grown up um, observing sort of Catholicism, but from the outside, 
and and it's sort of given me a, an interesting sort of perspective in that I'm 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 not necessarily sort of like like Kevin Smith sort of like soaked in the dogma and and trying to deal with my own sort of Catholicism and instead it's just sort of observing it and the iconography and you know what what it sort of means and and almost anthropological um, sort of sort of take on it and I think one of the things in this book is it is very very Catholic I mean there is the overt sort of um, imagery that we see especially with Maggie you know and and in the in the the issue the pariah issue where he's having the memory and and there's the the shadow of her cross and then later you know he he sort of reaches up and touches her cross and and knows it's her you knows that's who was there when i was a child um and Mm. and i think like there is um a lot of that kind of imagery that that does speak not just to like i think you're right in terms of the art and 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 the the nods to Catholicism there but I think in terms of the theming as well and and sort of you know redemption and 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 sort of um Matt's guilt I mean he 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 struggles with his inner demons and 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 is continuously throughout you know his his uh existence after this book you know once he becomes more Catholic is for is, is forever you know, questioning his, his sort of decisions and asking for forgiveness and, and going to confession. And, but I think that sort of starts here in, in this story where, you know, at the very end, um, when he is recovering and, and he, he is in that room with Maggie and the other nuns, um, you know, there, there is a moment in that, in that scene where, where Maggie is sort of praying over him and she is, is kind of, very and it's very overt in, in that she's saying a prayer to to her God and and saying you know hey this is you know please 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 and then literally the next panel that happens is Ben Ulrich says the name Matt Murdock and up until that point in the story mm. Ben was or Ben was refusing to say his name you know he had been so shaken by Kingpin you know he had been so sort of um, you know, like bullied and like, oh my gosh. And so, you know, Kingpin told him like, you don't know this name. And so he, throughout the story, Ben's wandering around and saying, don't say the name, don't say the name. And it's not the name. And don't, you know, don't basically don't pursue the story. Don't say the name. And then there's a moment where, you know, Maggie and her nun regalia is, is leaning over Matt and just praying for him. And, and then, yeah, the next scene is literally Ben saying Matt Murdoch. And then that started the gears turning in his sort of, you know, pursuit of the actual story and, and finally sort of doing his part, which will eventually, you know, help to bring the light what's been going on with his life. So it's, it's very overt, I think too, in, in sort of that idea of, of, you know, praying to a God that, that then does, is it, is it saying that there was a, there was a, a hand of, of God working in, in the world there? I, I don't know, but, but the, for sure that that is the, sort of um, reference that it's making and the analogy or sort of the idea is that very sort of Catholic idea of, of, of praying to a God that then can, can take an active, you know, sort of role in your life. So it, it's, it's fascinating. It's a, I think it's really an interesting way that Miller just like dives headfirst into like deep Catholicism in, in this book. And then that becomes so rooted in, in who Matt is throughout the rest of his sort of, um, I almost said career <laughs> throughout the rest of the character. Yeah. I, I just, I didn't make that connection. You know, she is saying, you know, please spare him. So many people need him. 
And then you're right. It is this. Is it divine intervention that finally gives Ben Urich the strength? Is it Maggie praying to give Ben the strength to remove the cast that's been on his hand for too long, and to finally speak Matt's name and you know finally get back to his true calling of fighting the good fight through the power of the press? Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I think I think Miller does a a good job of of sort of walking that fine line of not saying whether he really thinks it was divine intervention or not. It, it, you know, and and I think that is so much of sort of Catholicism in general is, is if, if you believe and you are a believer, you, you can see that in the world and you can see that, but, it, but if, if you're not, a, you know, it's maybe not as obvious and either interpretation is what it is. And I think this comic does the same thing. It's not like there's nothing where it's like a, the, the clouds part and something shines from, you know, the, the, the heavens mm-hmm. and is like, and his name is Matt Murdock. Like there's nothing like that. Right. But, but there is those moments that if, if you are, perhaps Catholic that you could really draw a, a deep connection um, to that in that moment when it happens. There are some really cool moments. Like Kingpin is just given so much weight. You know, he's drawn in these very solid black clothing, you know, again, connecting to Sin City where it is nothing but solid blacks and solid whites, but it just gives him so much weight and so much presence. There's this wonderful image of Daredevil. Finally, Matt Murdock's finally donned the costume again and he's stepping out. But there's one panel that I just kind of couldn't help but notice, you know, there's a scene where Kingpin, even though he's like this very large kind of overweight character, he's quite physical and he does fight characters and he's got like his henchmen kind of teaming up and he's kind of training in his home gym. And there's this wonderful, really big, you know, extreme close up of Kingpin turning and yelling at his his uh, number one guy. Uh, but there's just these really bold, really thick black lines that are the outline of the kingpin and just the the line that goes from his neck down his shoulder, it just goes outside the panel and just keeps going all the way to the edge of the page. And mm. it's just, I love it that, you know, I can just imagine Matsukeli drawing kingpin and just pressing down so hard and just, you know, really trying to capture the, the enormity and the size of Kingpin so much so that he couldn't stop his, his brush from continuing off the edge of that page. I'm trying to find where it is in the book just so I can direct you two guys to it, but I can just, I, it really is just, it's definitely not on purpose because you know, the color doesn't extend past that panel border. There's no other lines that extend past that panel border, but just this one line of his shoulder and it just Kingpin cannot be contained. It's the seventh page on comiXology of, issue uh 230 that born again and he's turning and he's facing the reader but also facing his his number one guy saying i did not invite debate but this just thick black line of his neck and his shoulder just continuing and i just can not stop picturing message kelly being he's not in control kingpin the character is in control of his brush mark i love it Oh yeah, that's a that's, that's, that's a good panel, and he's kind of got. He, I also like that the thick blacks. He he he's using a really thick line too. It's not just that mm-hmm. it's it's the whole thing is just you can feel you know his emotion just coming off of those 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 heavy blacks. And it's it's really juxtaposed with the the last panel on that page where a very broken Ben Urich is just whispering. He's got these tiny, tiny words inside the speech balloon to his wife. Like don't even think the name. It's so important that we don't even think the name, but his panel border is just this very jagged, very rough kind of broken panel border echoing how broken he is as a character, but just two very different line weights with such 
very different feelings. It, it's very visceral, the, this page here. It's, you know, I'm sure it was like a mistake, but it just says so much about, you know, this character just overwhelming, even the creator. Well, and we haven't talked much about Kingpin. We talk, talked a little bit, but I think one of the things I love about the story is the the Kingpin's just just sort of not not madness, but being getting sucked into his his obsessiveness over over Matt. He just can't, mm-hmm. you know his his Kingpin's whole mo is he's a gangster and he he in, intimidates people and he and he you know threats of violence and actual violence to keep them in line and, and sort of breaks them. And that's you can see that with Ben that he's he's fairly successful until the end. But like Matt just won't break, you know. That's that is Matt. That is Daredevil. That is that character, and you know the Kingpin. It's just any, you know, in the beginning, King can be, Kingpin even says like, I don't really care about Daredevil. This is just kind of a lark. It's just kind of for fun. <laughs> but then like he just he just gets obsessed because Matt just won't quit and he just won't break. And and there's this great great uh, one page spread. It's right. It's it's in Pariah. This the last page right after the you know we talked about the you know matt's mother in the in the pose that is the michelangelo statue and the next very next page is just kingpin lifting weights and just thinking to himself and there's like sweat on his brow and it says he's been thinking for like six hours straight and and he just cannot stop thinking about murdoch and 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 he has this whole line where it's like you know what is it about murdoch you know it's like he was a minor concern a promising talent to be observed and cataloged and occasionally flattered and perhaps one day to be turned to the kingpin's way and in this part so the kingpin is like thinking in these captions he's like but he's more than this now he is much more than this he always was and i i have shown him that a man without hope is a man without fear and i think love it that is just such a great that that writing is great and it encapsulates the character of Daredevil and it encapsulates Kingpin's like growing obsession that culminates with him unleashing a military sort of terrorist to just start blowing up New York. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 just I don't know. I, I love the way Kingpin is depicted through the story, but I also love sort of that internal battle he's having of like, why can't I break this guy and why can't I stop thinking about this this guy? That that really sets up their relationship for the rest of the comics. Yeah, I mean, if if Kingpin wasn't his arch ne- arch nemesis by the end of Miller's original run, I mean, he certainly is now. Like these two are intertwined in a way that few nemesis nemesi are, I think, in comics. I, I love that line. You know, he daredevil you know his subtitle has always been the man without fear but i love that this kind of recontextualizes that you know a man without hope is a man without fear and you know is it a good thing or is it is it a weakness or a strength to be without fear and what does that mean to different people right but i I think we've all kind of touched on this that you know one of the strengths of this book is the supporting cast and there are so many storylines but so many characters are given such full lives and full motivations and you know Ben Urich, just like how he writes, um, not only The Dark Knight Returns with Gordon, you know, Commissioner Gordon being an equal character, but very much in year one, it's not just a Bruce Wayne story. It's very much a Bruce Wayne and a Jim Gordon story. And I think this is, you know, it is very much a Matt Murdock story, but it's also very much a Kingpin story and very much a Urich story and very much a Foggy story and very much a Karen Page story. So it is this this full cast, and Daredevil has a full cast. And I mean, part of that is because he has dated so many women that he's got a deep bench of supporting characters. <laughs> right. 
Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I knew when I said, hey, Kale, I got a buddy who I think would be a really fascinating guest to have on. I think we'd have some really good chats and I, you definitely delivered. So thank you so much. This was so much fun for me, you know, combining two of my favorite people into one chat. I had a really good time. Um, so hopefully you had a good time as well, Josh. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was this was awesome. I've been listening since the first episode, and and I think I told you like there are many episodes where the two of you are talking, and I'm like jumping in and and <laughs> responding to you know everybody's horror around me as I'm just like talking to myself. But I'm like, oh hey, but guys, what about this? And like, oh yeah, I agree. So it's fun to actually finally finally be be on here. I'm a big fan, and I'm just uh, honored that you invited me on for this uh, for this book. If you're listening at home and you feel like you want to contribute and jump in or correct us or agree with us, you know, you can follow us on social media. We're at Matt and Kale Read Comics on Instagram and Facebook. We're at Matt and Kale Read on Twitter. And you can also email us at Matt and Kale RC at Gmail. Hey Josh, it's really nice to finally talk to you as well. And uh, <laughs> uh, I remember there was a comic that Matt made a while back uh, where you matt goes to japan and uh like you guys meet and then i wake up from a cold sweat and i say something terrible has happened (laughs) (laughs) that's right (laughs) well now i brought the two of you together yeah well i mean Um, (laughs) same here i mean like like every other word out of matt's mouth is is always been kale so like i i I feel like i've like i've already met you (laughs) For sure. And on that note, I want to extend an invite. So for any future episodes, uh, you know, we'd love to have you back. And uh, I really enjoyed your insight uh, for this book. Thanks. I appreciate it. I would would happily join again. I I was, I was, you know, I was, I'm glad that Kale said that. I was hoping it was going to go well because I thought it'd be kind of cool if the three of us reunited for another Daredevil book and kind of, you know, compare and contrast uh, Daredevil in the hands of different creators. So I think that might be a kind of a cool way or if you have any other books you want to talk about, Josh, but I think we definitely uh, can keep this trio going a little bit longer. Um, Just as we're about to wrap up, thank you again to Josh, but also, uh, Josh, if your dad's listening, I want to say thank you to your dad because he backed my graphic novel, You're Stuck With Me Now, on Kickstarter, which I thought was really sweet. (laughs) He loves it. So thank you to your dad. He loves it. (laughs) I'm I'm glad that he enjoyed it. For getting shout-outs to the parents, I got to give a shout-out to John and Shelly. Hey, hope you guys are doing great. (laughs) Um, So, listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us for this episode. Hopefully this has given you a bit of a taste for Daredevil. We do want to say that we're building up to our 10th episode. It's going to be very exciting. We're looking at The Dark Knight Returns. So this is Frank Miller writing and drawing Batman. Very, very seminal book. Um, But we know that it has this kind of large impact on pop culture and on comics and and comics specifically, but also pop culture. If you are a fan, if you have something you want to say about The Dark Knight Returns, please send us a voice memo. We kind of want to hear from listeners and we want to play some voice clips on that 10th episode. So send us a voice clip by email, um, mattandkalerc at gmail.com or, you know, send us, uh, contact us on Facebook at mattandkalereadcomics. But for the next episode, we are going to look at 30 Days of Night. It's a vampire story sent in winter. We thought it would be very appropriate for this winter that we are having right now. But thank you so much, and we will see you in two weeks for 30 Days of Night.